the thing with this episode is no one send it to my boss. Okay? Cool. Good. I trust you. As I was writing notes for this, I was meant to be working. I had to email someone, a bunch of people actually. I had to do research. I had a meeting in just under an hour. There was this document that someone had sent me and I was like, oh my God, that needs to be edited so badly. And on my computer I had my email open, had my calendar open, my Trello board, my Slack, my Outlook, my Asana profile. This sounds like somebody who has a job, right? <laughs> Next to my desk I have a postcard that I got sent by a journal in the UK and it has a reproduction on it of an artwork by a guy called Robert Montgomery. I don't actually know much about Robert as a person, but I really love his artwork. And this one that the journal sent me says, to wake up and be like the weather, to be no longer the broken-hearted servants of mad kings. And I've had that little postcard for ages, maybe 10 years, and it's been sitting above my desk all that time. And over that time, I have quit a bunch of jobs. I'm really good at quitting jobs. And this little phrase has been kind of a guiding light, reminding me what I was going for when I made those decisions. To wake up and be like the weather, to be able to change every day depending on whatever was going on, to be able to respond to the world, to not have to be this static machine that shows up every day and opens up the calendar, the email, the messages in this programmatic way, but to be able to be flexible and to be no longer the broken-hearted servants of mad kings. I really like my boss at the moment. I'm not just saying that because I'm afraid you're going to send this to her. <laughs> I, She's the best boss I've ever had, like for real. But there are plenty of days in my other office jobs where I was yeah, probably brokenhearted. I mean, I applied for whatever job it was in good faith with a lot of hope, a lot of wide-eyed optimism. And it is kind of heartbreaking when you get to a point where you realise this is not what I thought it was going to be and it's never going to be that. And I think the people who are in charge here might be insane. <laughs> but I always kept working. I was a great little worker. I have friends from these old jobs who joke with me about how quickly I would reply to them when they wanted something, how I would just fix it immediately. So here I am sitting here, it's a Monday morning, looking up at that Robert Montgomery phrase. I don't know if it's quite a poem. I guess it's a poem to me by now. And at the moment, I don't know if this is true for you too, I kind of hope I'm not the only one, but I just can't work. I can do the bare minimum, but that's not who I am. I know myself to be a pretty dedicated employee, if that's something to be proud of. A friend of mine said to me the other week, that along with this apparent phenomenon of the great resignation, there's also the hidden resignation 
everyone who can't quit per se, but is showing up and doing what we can to drag ourselves through and hoping no one calls us on the fact that we're not really trying anymore. We just lost motivation, which I think is understandable. I mean, if someone were telling this to me, I would say to them, of course you can't work. Why would you work? What's the point? <laughs> What's the point? The thing that I did, the, the second novel I ever tried to write was a book called Just Past Central. And it, it eventually died on the vine, possibly because the main character dies in the first sentence of the book. And so like trying to figure out how I protracted it from there was Now this forced me to crystallize this, kind of think about this fundamental belief about humanity, and that is this. The best way that you can serve humanity is to write a book. So I've been circling something in these last few solo episodes. It'll shock you to know that my in-person interviews have been a little bit hard to organise recently. Uh, but I've been circling this this theme of, of, I guess, not writing. And not only have I been slacking off in my job recently, but it has been months and months and months since I have had any impulse to write anything of substance at all. In fact, what I've written over the last two years feels like it's somebody else's work but I very much want to be writing in theory. But in practice, the moment just never arrives. And I haven't been able to put my finger on exactly why. I mean, there are, there are so many obvious reasons. And I keep thinking about what Dan Hogan said to me when I interviewed them about writing against the backdrop of multiple overlapping crises. But weirdly for me, that that's not what it feels like. I forced myself to get off the news recently. I'm not thinking about the multiple overlapping crises consciously day to day. That's not what's stopping me from writing, even though that's an excellent reason. That's a watertight reason. It would make sense not to want to respond to the world right now. It makes sense to me not wanting to write a poem because... There's something about putting a poem together that feels like tying a bow around something that's still moving. I don't trust any of my conclusions at the moment. I don't trust my instincts. But that's not quite it. I think it's a question of motivation. Now, I know this sounds like a grandiose statement, but since then, then I've dedicated my life to this singular it'll purpose. It'll come back to me. And we've the been main able to thing to know when dealing with these office. kinds of creative slumps and again, given how much quitting-related content there's been on here recently, you could be forgiven for thinking that I've started making an anti-poetry podcast, but that's not it. The point has always been, at least in part, just to acknowledge how hard it is sometimes and to bust the myths about what it is to be a writer, a poet, a person who makes things. There's this pervasive myth, and this came up uh, last episode, that if you just sit down every day, if you just show up, the rewards will come to you. I don't know if that's necessarily true. It might be. But again, I don't trust my conclusions anymore. And what I'm realising is that my reasons for showing up are totally different now from what they used to be. 
And that might actually be a really good thing. I talked to you today about an essay that I wrote uh, for the New York Times um, last year, which went under a rather it. dramatic this, uh, heading. Uh, it was called it Why be true You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Every other writer out there. It may not and be true for any other writer. Uh, begin, um... At the moment, I'm doing this course on Rilke. And in last week's class, we were looking a little bit at letters to a young poet. The young poet in question, Franz Kappus, collected all these letters that Rilke had sent him and it ended up being turned into a book. And at one point Rilke says to Franz, go into yourself, find the reason that commands you to write. See whether it has spread its roots into the very depths of your heart. Confess to yourself whether you would have to die if you were forbidden to write. This most of all, Ask yourself in the most silent hour of your night, must I write? Dig into yourself for a deep answer. And if this answer rings out in assent, if you meet this solemn question with a strong, simple I must, then build your life in accordance with this necessity. Your whole life, even into its humblest and most indifferent hour, must become a sign and witness to this impulse. This has always pissed me off so much. What is Rilke doing here? Is he just trying to turn this poor guy off writing completely? I don't know about you, but I would not have to die if I were forbidden to write. I would do other things if for some reason I couldn't write. This line of thinking always made me feel terrible because... I thought when I read it, well, I don't feel that way. Maybe I don't want it enough. Maybe I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. I definitely can't live up to this real key and standard. I couldn't then when I first read it seven odd years ago and I, I can't now. It doesn't feel life or death for me. And I don't think it has to be life or death. I think that is ridiculous. People often underestimate the time it takes to complete a project. So give yourself plenty of leeway of when setting goals. Successful people who failed, Pomodoro never gave up. You will never know what you really keep. But I started thinking, okay, well, what have you been doing it for then? And I think, if I'm honest, I wrote poems to prove to myself that I could write poems and that those poems could get past editors and that they could get into journals and then I could write enough of them to make a decent book. And really it was about fulfilling the expectations of a past me who didn't really know a huge amount about what doing those things would actually feel like. And in a way, when that is your motivation, as you go through it, it's kind of like a colour by numbers. You're, you're stepping through these instructions and the picture comes together, but it doesn't look and feel exactly like how you expected. And don't get me wrong, it, it, it felt great. But now I'm on the other side of those things. And I'm asking myself, why am I still writing? Not in terms of what's the use of it. And not even in terms of why should I write instead of somebody else. Just really simply, what's the reason? 
And in a job, it's easy. You're at work because you're getting paid, first and foremost. And sometimes you get to do something you care about while you get paid. And occasionally it's less about the pay and more about the care. But most of us need to work. Not many of us need to write. And very few of us, I imagine, need to write in the way that Rilke would have us need to write. Have you ever wondered how Jordan Peterson deals with being attacked? How he felt during the tundra Hello, of conflict? Everybody. It's a brand new year. Finally. Goodbye, 2020, you crazy bitch. I took a poll over on Instagram. The other bit of Rilke that always really annoyed me was the ending of the poem Archaic Torso of Apollo. There's a million and one translations of this poem. I'm going to go with the one that was published in the LA Review of Books by a guy called Carl Skogard, which seems just as good as any. It's a sonnet and it goes like this. We never knew his unexampled head in which the eyes ripened like apples, but his torso goes on glowing like a candelabrum, in which his gaze merely dialed back, holds steady and shines. Otherwise the curve of the chest could not blind you, and in the slight swerve of the loins, no smile could go to that centre which bore the begetting. Otherwise this stone would stand here, broken, beneath the limpid fall of the shoulders, and would not glisten like the pelt of a tiger and would not erupt from all its edges like a star. For there is no place here that does not see you. You must change your life. So I've been learning in my Rilke course that he wrote this when he was Rodin's assistant. Rodin seems to have been some kind of daddy, father figure to Rilke, and inspired his art and his approach to being an, a male artist. I think I always had the emphasis in the wrong place at the end of this poem. This whole time I've been taking it as you must change your life, burn everything down, quit the job, figure out how to wake up and be like the weather. But now I'm starting to see it slightly differently. I think the emphasis is on you. You must change your life because change is going to happen. It's going to keep happening to all of us all the time. <laughs> but I do have choices. And what I'm realizing now is that I'm the only one who can decide why it is I'm doing the parts that I've decided on doing. So if I'm gonna write poems or not, I must change my life. So like trying to figure out how I like, yeah, yeah, protracted it from there was, was really difficult. And I spent the better part of a year, you know, uh, going through different iterations. But thinking about Rilke, I remembered that in David Brooks' essay collection, The Grass Library, which he gave me when I interviewed him a couple of years back now, uh, it's just a beautiful essay collection. It just just floats past you. It's so easy to read. He has an essay called Kicking Rilke, which is a beautiful story about how his dog Charlie continues to kick his Rilke collection under the bed so David can't find it and he can't figure out why it's just the Rilke book that he kicks under there. The whole collection is about 
David's relationship to animals, or as he puts it, non-human animals. So I went back to this essay and David's explanation of what Rilke is doing suddenly brought it all together for me. So this is from Kicking Rilke in the Grass Library. David says, Rilke's long been a favourite of mine. I number his elegies among the great poems of last century. And in some ways, Rilke's a pioneer as an animal poet. Animals, he says, meaning non-human ones, live wholly within the moment. Whereas humans have lost this capacity, our present is always contaminated by our preoccupation with the past and our hopes or anxieties about the future. Our sense of time has divorced us from our being as it happens. And so has language, which filters the world about us, determining how we see and even what we're able to see in the first place. Words become substitutes for the things they represent, depriving those things of much of their intensity and presence. We've isolated ourselves in our interpreted world, Rilke says, putting ourselves into a kind of cage. Animals, on the other hand, live in what he calls the open. We touched really briefly on this idea of the open in class last week, and I didn't quite get it then, but I think I'm starting to understand it now. And I'm also wondering if this is why Lucy Van's collection is called The Open. I'm going to have to ask her about that. So David goes on, Even more alluring is the way he uses his own poetry, the way he treats things in the moment in that poetry, as a means of showing us how we might stick our heads out of the cage and breathe a bit of the open for ourselves. His poems, at their best, try to give back to things some of the intensity, mystery and weight of existence that the distracted human mind has come to overlook. Don't try to impress the angels with your speculations about metaphysical things, he says. They know far more about them than you ever will. Tell them about this world. So look, I don't think I'm someone who needs to write in order to stay alive. Maybe I'm never going to be able to reconcile myself to Rilke's way of thinking and maybe I don't really want to. What I know about Rilke so far is uh, I think he might be kind of a bad hang, actually. I'm not going to force myself and no one is asking me to. Nobody needs me to do that. But I do like the idea of telling the angels about this world. That doesn't seem like a bad place to start.